Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 45 through 48. What I'm going to do this morning is that I'm going to preach through... uh, This passage, but we're really going to look at more in the sermon outline through a parallel passage of this account in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. But we're going through the gospel of Luke, and we've fallen upon this passage, and I want to read it over us this morning before we begin. Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray one more time. God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and as we, uh, Lord, get ready to partake in the reception of your word, uh, I pray and confess uh, that apart from you, I can do nothing and we can do nothing. And so it's all by your grace, it's all by your spirit, it's all by your word this morning. My prayer is, Lord, that you would build up your church and uh, edify us through uh, this message. Uh, I pray, as the psalmist prayed, that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. And Lord, I, the older I get, I just see that it's you that reveals spiritual truth to us. You open our eyes in salvation, and Lord, our growth is just a continued expansion of our understanding of your word and of you and of your work in Christ Jesus. And so my prayer this morning is that you would do that for us. You would open our eyes. You would expand our hearts to receive your word, uh, Lord, and to gaze upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords in this passage. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so if you would go ahead and flip to Mark 11, Uh, Mark 11 verses 15 through 18. Mark's account is a little more thorough and it's of the same account. And so I'll be walking through that passage uh, verse by verse and referring back to Luke as we continue to to walk through the passage. I remember being younger and um, have an older brother. And those of you who have older brothers can relate um, that he, John, just beat me up pretty, I mean, all, all the time, right? That's what, I guess that's what big brothers are for. A brother was given for adversity. And, uh, and so John fulfilled that perfectly in my life. And, uh, but not only John, he had friends. Uh, and so John was three years older than me and all his buddies uh, just <laughs> found great joy in pinning me down and uh, beating me up and uh, just tormenting me into the, the point of me losing my mind. Uh, and there were a few times where, where I would just cry. You know, I was like 12 years old and uh, they would just, it was to the point of exhaustion. I was so tired of being picked on that I would cry, but my weeping would turn uh, to anger. And some of you have been there with your older brothers. You're so frustrated and you are so burdened that you cry, but then you just, you've had enough. And I think when John saw that my weeping had turned to anger, that that was the point that he needed to stop because I was about to grab something and, and hit him with it or, you know, that's when I would lo- just lose my mind. Um, and this morning, uh, we see Jesus, uh, his weeping turned to righteous indignation in the passage that we're looking at is that Jesus, uh, in last week's passage, it ended uh, as Jesus came, came into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry is that he Uh, He weeped over the state of Jerusalem, over the spiritual state of his people. And there was a true brokenness uh, over Israel's unbelief and continued hard heart. Uh, And in this passage, I believe that we see him turn uh, to righteous indignation. 
that, that he expresses some of his judgment physically in what he does. And I'll be honest with you, I've, I've, never, I've never preached this passage. I've never really studied the passage. And there was a lot more there this morning than I thought was there. And that's what the Lord does in sermon prep is that he graces you with hours of just gazing upon the passage and studying and thinking and praying. And I pray that you see what I see this morning. So first we see uh, in the text, clearly look at the word, look at the text in Mark 11, uh, that the setting is Jerusalem. It says they came to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem. And so this is the setting of this story that we've heard. Probably if you've grown up in church, you've heard this story over and over. You've maybe heard it multiple times. And it's, it's kind of a prominent story where we hear Jesus uh, seemingly lose his temper at what's going on in the temple. And he flips the tables, right? And he, in, in John's account at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, uh, that he has, he has a whip and he's driving these money changers out of the temple. But again, I believe that there's much more here uh, than meets the eye. And so the setting of the text is Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. In Luke chapter nine, earlier in the gospel of Luke that we've been walking through in Luke chapter nine, verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for for Jesus to be taken up, it, it, it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Not one step of our Lord's ministry was wasted or careless or haphazard. Is that he was intentional in all that he did, every conversation that he had, every path that he took, and it was all heading to Jerusalem. It was all heading to Jerusalem. He draws closer and closer to what we know as Passion Week. And what's been apparent to me as we've gone through the book of Luke is that his judgments... And his clarity have been progressive, that as his ministry has gone on, Jesus begins to reveal more of who he is and his judgments become more clear against the nation of Israel. The closer that he gets to the cross, the more intense his teachings with his disciples, the clearer his identity revealed to them and the more severe his judgments against the religious piety of the Jewish people. The time with his disciples intensified. We see, I think about Matthew 16, when Jesus reveals, right? He asked Simon Peter in the group, he says, who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter says, well, you were, you were the Messiah. You were the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. And there's this blessing. And then he begins to, after that text, he begins to reveal to them that the son of man must go to the cross and must die and they have trouble comprehending it. But the time with his disciples even intensified as he grew closer and closer to the cross, that he is pointing more and more to what he must do as their king. Last week's text made clear, Jesus was making clear from Zechariah chapter nine that he is, Messiah, he is the Messiah. He is the king of Israel. He accepts the praises of those who sing out, cry out to him, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus welcomes this praise. The Pharisees try and quiet the children and quiet the people. And Jesus willingly receives this praise because he is who he is. He proclaims that the rocks will cry out, that the son of David will get his due praise. And it's almost an anticlimactic entry into Jerusalem. If you look at Mark's account at the end uh, where, where Jesus comes into the city, he rides into the city and look at verse 11, Mark chapter 11, verse 11. It says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late and he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so we see kind of this anticlimactic entry that there's praise and honor at our king who has come in and Jesus goes to the temple. And it says that he looks around. So he's got a vantage point sizing up the spiritual state of Jerusalem, of his people, of their holy place, the temple. And he is broken over the hardened state 
We know that this is the time of the Passover as he goes to Jerusalem. It says that Jesus went out to Bethany in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. There were, Jerusalem's population would have grown by almost four times during the Passover. There were thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds and thousands of people, pilgrims flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so tons of people were staying within the city. And so Jesus stayed right outside of Jerusalem and Bethany. And so I can see the misplaced anticipation of the Jews and maybe even Jesus's disciples, because what did they think he was going to do? Surely at this time, Jesus is going to rally the battalion. Like if this is our king, we've just proclaimed, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're gonna come and help us overthrow Rome. They would want to know the plans for his overthrow, right? He's gonna come in, he's gonna rescue Israel from the bondage of the yoke of Rome. And the air is tense with his disciples. Surely he'll march right up to the Antonia Fortress. It's something that Herod built, that it was, it was kind of a fortress over Jerusalem where Roman soldiers were housed. It was 115 feet high and 165 feet wide, that it functioned as kind of a headquarters for Roman soldiers. And so surely what Jesus was beelining it there. If he is the Messiah, he is the king, and he's going to help us to get out from under the yoke of Rome. But that's not where Jesus went, that he went to the temple. And he's making clear that, that he has not come to rescue the Jewish people from out under the yoke of Rome. This kingdom that the Messiah, the king of David, this kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. Is that Jesus is establishing a spiritual kingdom where he will rule the hearts of his followers. The king was not putting to death Rome by military victory, but he was putting to death sin, Satan, and the world through spiritual victory. That he was putting to death death, as one author has put it, in the death of Christ Jesus. His kingdom is not advanced through military victory or the physical killing of enemies, that his kingdom advances through his followers dying to themselves. In John chapter 18, Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if it were, what does he say? My followers would be fighting. King Jesus knew that a greater enemy than Rome had the people of God enslaved, and that is the enemy of sin and the enemy of idolatry. And this king had come to die. Victory through death. The foolishness of the cross. He was weeping over their spiritual state and he was moved to righteous indignation. Our Western, white, blue-eyed, perfectly bearded, trimmed Jesus needs to be confronted this morning with what we see in the text. How some of those pictures, how, how did he keep his beard line so crisp before the invention of razors? Meek and mild Jesus, he is angry and confrontational here. Most of the greatest examples of godly men in my life are men who are gracefully firm, and that's what we see in our Lord, that he is meek and humble, yet he will not flinch in the face of sin and idolatry, and he is provoked to righteous anger. So that is the setting in which we find this account in our text. Now let's look at the actions of Jesus. The actions of Jesus. Look at the text. Chapter 11, verse 15 in Mark. He, they came to Jerusalem, that's the setting, and he entered the temple and it says he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Luke's account says that he just entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, I think Jesus is being specific. I mean, he's intentional in what he's doing. Now, we're gonna talk about the corruption 
of, of what's going on, but I think there is a greater motivation for Jesus's reaction than what we see here. But I want to look at his actions first and what his actions point us to. First, that his actions, the actions of Jesus point to him being the high priest. If you read the book of Hebrews, you know that Jesus fulfills the office of high priest perfectly. That that office, his role, the high priest in the Old Testament has its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And if you look right down Leviticus chapters 11 through really through 16, you see responsibilities of the high priest in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read all of this, but in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 36 says, then the priest shall command that they empty the house. This is talking about if someone has been, someone has leprosy, the priest would say, is it clean? Is he clean or is he unclean? And there's this long drawn out process of a person becoming ritualistically clean before they could participate in worship. That was one of the responsibilities and roles of the high priest. And so it says, the priest shall command that they empty the house in which they found this man before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And essentially at the, at the end of that section in Leviticus 14, verse 36, stick with me. It says, and he shall have the inside of the house scraped and the plaster that they scrape off and they shall pour in, pour it, take it to an unclean place outside of the city. So if he cannot be cleansed of this leprosy, right? He has to tear down the house. Verse 42, Leviticus 14, then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. So they have to rebuild the entire house stone by stone and brick by brick. And Jesus, when he comes and does what he does in the temple, he is pointing to the fact that he is the fulfillment of this priestly office that would cleanse the individuals for worship. Not only that, we see in Leviticus chapter 16, I preached this message a while back on the day of atonement. One of the things that the high priest had to do was cleanse for the tabernacle, that the tabernacle itself had to be cleansed from the sin of the people. Leviticus 16, 16, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And so he had to cleanse for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people. Now the current high priest, if you look back at Luke, you don't have to flip there, Luke chapter three, verse two, it tells us that this was during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And these were two godless men who gained their position by bribery, bribery and robbery. Annas, the high priest at this time, was allowing desecration and defilement in the temple of God, that he was diverting the temple from its true purpose, the undefiled worship of God. And so in the outer courts where the Gentiles could have come, the Gentiles should have smelled the incense from sacrifices, but they smelt animal dung as they were being bought and sold in the marketplace. Where they should have heard the prayers of the priest, they heard the haggling of prices. Where impure motives should have been cleansed and confessed, they were being indulged in for monetary profits. The furthest thing from Annas and Caiaphas, the current high priests, the furthest thing from their mind was the pure and undefiled worship of God. But our high priest is better. The office has its fulfillment in Christ that Jesus comes in to the temple and he assumes his role. Hebrews 4, 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. He is the better Aaron who, who after making purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Old Testament priest, right, had to cleanse the tabernacle itself and himself before he made atonement for the people. Jesus, our high priest, entered the true presence of God to make atonement, and he was undefiled. He was perfect. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he's tempted in every respect in which we are, but without sin. The Old Testament high priest was appointed by God, and these high priests are really appointed themselves. 
But Jesus, our high priest, was appointed by God because he was God in the flesh. And the Old Testament priest and the current priest had no power whatsoever to cleanse the hearts of the worshipers. The sacrifices that were made, we find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, were not able. The blood of bulls and goats are not able to cleanse the heart of sin. Jesus, our great high priest, his sacrifice is able to cleanse us and to keep on cleansing us. No one else had this authority and no one else had the ability to do what Jesus was about to do. He's the only mediator between God and man. And so he steps in to let the Israelite people know that I am the great high priest, that this responsibility that is being mismanaged and defiled by Annas and Caiaphas, I'm going to come in and cleanse the temple. He is able to do the work. At this point, he commands the obedience of the crowd. We don't read anywhere in any of the texts that people rushed at him. This was a big deal. There were thousands of people around him. The Jewish people would have viewed this as extremely disgraceful, what Jesus was doing, but he commanded their attention and their submission. Almost like when he calms the wind and the waves in front of Peter, that all you can do is be silent and fall down. Verse 16 in Mark chapter 11 says, says that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. They were using the temple court as a shortcut in the city. And so you can just see how it's just lackadaisical. They were cutting through the temple courts. They were trying to get around the city. They were carrying things through the temple courts. Jesus did not allow anyone through the temple. He was in control. But secondly, I think his actions point Right, when he comes in and he cleanses the temple, I think it points to, to a final cleansing from all sin. That, that this work that Jesus does, this act that he does in this text is, is a symbol of what, of what Jesus will do finally at the end time. Stay with me. He was in effect pointing forward to the, to the day when all manner of defilement would be finally removed from God's presence. Temple theology is a thread that goes throughout the Bible. We know about the tabernacle. We know about the two temples built in the Old Testament. We know of their defilement. We know of Herod's temple that is built at this time. And really Eden is, is a type of a temple where God dwells with man. Sin entered the temple of Eden and defiled it, corrupting humanity and separating us from God. God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. God's presence is there. And God instituted the sacrificial system so that he might dwell with his people and they with him. But sin has always destroyed Worship in the temple, worship with God. It is always our issue. God dwelt with his people in the temple built by Solomon, but sin again corrupts worship. Jesus, who is God, dwells among us when he comes on the earth, that he tabernacles with us, John 1, that he dwells with humanity. And Jesus' cleansing of this temple is looking forward what God would do next through his church. In this text, right, Jesus clears the temple. But in a few weeks, he declares the destruction of the temple, right, that it's gonna be destroyed because really Jesus is the temple. I know it's a little bit early this morning. Jesus is the temple. John 14, six says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So now this morning for the New Testament church, to enter fellowship with a holy God, we don't go through a gate or a court or through some doors, right? We don't have to worry about going through the Gentile court, the men's court, the women's court, the high priestly court, to the, you know, to the outer court, to the holy place, to the most holy places that we go through Jesus. Jesus is the temple. We don't go anywhere geographically to get to God the Father. We go through repentance and faith in Jesus. And now... The church, according to 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that the church, us gathered together this morning, we are the temple of God. Not only individually, but corporately, that this physical structure that we are gathering in is not the temple or the house, 
Paul says that we are the temple. Peter says that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Christ Jesus, our cornerstone, that the presence of God now dwells in believers. And he has cleansed us. John 15, three, already you were clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Speaking to Peter in Titus chapter three, verse five, that we've been washed and cleansed, it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But there still remains sin in our temples, that there is indwelling sin in every single believer this morning, but God is cleansing us through the power of his spirit over time. And by his sacrifice, he continues to cleanse us, 1 John 1, 7. And not only is he individually cleansing us, he's corporately cleansing us, that we are the, the temple of God. And you, so you see this thread from Old to New Testament, and it has, his, has its end right in Revelation 21, and we'll get there in just a minute. But Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That the Spirit helps us put to death the defilement in our temples in order for us to worship God in spirit and in truth. And let me say this, the place where God dwells will be cleansed. That is what the effective sacrifice of Jesus does. And so this morning, if you're claiming to be a believer and the spirit of God dwells in you, you will not be perfect, but there will be a continual setting aside of unrighteousness and a continual pursuit of righteousness in Christ Jesus because God dwells in you. That is a defining mark of the believer, is a growth in godliness and an evidence of turning from sin because we are the, the temple of God, that God dwells in us and he is in this process of cleansing sin from us, not only individually, but corporately as his temple. He's cleansing us. Isn't this the reason that Jesus died? He says in Ephesians chapter five that Jesus gave himself for the church that he might present the church, the temple of God, pure and holy and blameless before God on the day of Christ Jesus. That's his intention in dying for us and in dwelling in us, that he's given us means of grace, accountability within the body. Church discipline, the preaching of the word, the speaking of the word, the spirit, prayer, and he's giving us each other as a means of grace to purify and cleanse the sin in us. The church, the gathering of God's people is where God manifests his glory and his presence, this side of heaven. If you want to experience God and see God, you go where his people are gathered for there he is among them. But one day, the final picture of this. Flip to Revelation chapter 21. Verse, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The new heavens and the new earth are a temple. If you look at the dimensions described at the end of Revelation, that it's a, it's a perfect cube. And, and the only perfect cube in the Old Testament is the holy of holies. So the entire new heavens and new earth will be cleansed of sin where God can dwell with his people for all eternity. 
The cleansing will be complete in the new heavens and new earth because in its entirety, it is a temple where God can dwell with his people. And this is the final fulfillment of that, a a place where God can dwell with his people and sin, we are unhindered by sin. One of my favorite lyrics about heaven has to deal with this truth by a group named Beautiful Eulogy. They say in their song, Acquired Acquired in Heaven, it says, the fulfillment of our expectation with nothing to separate us, nothing to hinder the saints from the greatest expression of adoration, finally fit with language to describe, with the right words to express, the richness of eternal possession, the blessing of inheritance, where God will be seen through purified eyes, purged, cleansed from the sin that blinded us from viewing God as glorified, purged from sin in the end times to dwell with God forever. Jesus steps onto the scene, cleanses this temple as a symbol of what he would accomplish through his death, burial, and resurrection that began at the fall of man and will come to completion in the end times. And that's what I want more than anything. You can take your streets of gold and you can take your mansion. I want God apart from my sin. And that is where he is taking us. That is where he is taking me. Our great high priest cleansed us and is cleansing us. And will one day complete the job and we will dwell with our God in perfect unity. That's what he's doing here. It is a prototype of what will be fulfilled and completed in the end times. But let's move on to get through it. The motivation for his anger, verse 17. The motivation for his anger. We know that this group of people was gathering in the court of the Gentiles. I have a, court, I have a picture this morning of the court of the Gentiles. If we could get that up real quick. Um, it's a picture in the slides. Just to give you an idea, it was a massive court. I mean, you said, I typed in there, court of the Gentiles. So that, that, that entire section, there was, there was a marketplace, right, that, where they were buying and selling uh, animals for the sacrifices. And the money changers were, they were changing, you know, Roman currency, Greek currency into this currency that was accessible only in the temple, right? They had, to, they had to change over their money to be able to pay the temple tax that was required to participate in worship. So it was, and it, it says that Jesus went into the temple, but it uses the Greek word uh, Aaron, and it's, it's the sacred place. It's the outer courts. There's a different word that's used for the inner sanctuary of the temple, And so they're in the Gentile courts. And so no Gentile was permitted beyond their court, right? That's the furthest that they could go in their participation in the worship of the one true God. Just to receive the crumbs, right, from their master's table, the distant worshipers. And so the Jewish people and the merchants, by their actions, were saying, there is no room for worship here. There is no room for worship here. The corrupt money changing and the animal selling wasn't the primary offense. That was not the primary offense. Listen, and we get insight into this, into the scriptures that he references. So he says, is it not written, my house, look at verse 17, look at the text. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? That's quoted from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Why don't you flip there real quick? Isaiah 56. Because I think this helps, see, this helps give us context and understanding as to why Jesus did what he did. If he quotes this text from the Old Testament, it's important for us to get the full context to understand what provoked God to righteous anger. What God weeps over and what angers God should, is what we should weep over and is what should anger us. And so let's get this right. Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, verse one, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. This is where we get at the heart of what Jesus is doing here. Verse three, let not the foreigner 
who has joined himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give, he's talking about foreigners and outsiders and rejects and eunuchs. I will give them a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Then look at verse six. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant. Now this is where Jesus quotes it from. And even in the next verse, the house of prayer, he says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all peoples. The Lord God who gathers outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Are you hearing what caused the indignation of Jesus? That the intention of this outer court and the plan of God from the beginning of the foundation of the world is that his house, his dwelling place would be with foreigners, outsiders, and outcasts. As if it wasn't hard enough for the Gentiles to draw near to the temple that all this mess is scattered at the only place that they were allowed. And so Jesus's indignation was motivated by God being robbed of his due worship of the nations. A barrier already existed for them. The traveling merchants were interfering with worship, with the worship of God. They were distracting from the worship of God. They were taking away from the worship of God. They were hindering the worship of the Gentiles, of the one true God. The message that God is the God of nations was being profaned. At a time, the Passover, at a time when there should have been an emphasis on it. The clearest message that God is a God who redeems is is, is Passover, that he saves by the blood of the lamb. This is the time to display that God is a God of the nations. And Jesus is concerned that his father is getting robbed of glory and honor and praise because he alone is do it. And God tells us that in his word that he is jealous for his name, right? He is a jealous God. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Psalm 78, 58, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. John's account of this in John chapter 2 says that the disciples remembered that an Old Testament text said that he would be zealous for my father's house. And so, in fact, both the Old and New Testament words for jealousy are also translated zeal, zealous. Being jealous and being zealous are essentially the same things in the Bible. And so God is zealous, Jesus is zealous and jealous for the worship that is due him and rightfully his of the nations. Who would be welcomed in in that text? Outcasts, eunuchs, Gentiles. And Jesus is saying this place should should be this and it's this. This place should be this way, that there should be room for the nations. He said, I cannot call this house a house of prayer for for all the peoples because the true picture of heaven was incomplete. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, And the church was begun in Acts chapter 2. We see on through in the book of Acts that Gentiles are welcomed into the church, right? Outsiders. 
Paul made clear in his testimony in the book of Philippians that he considered every national, ethnic, racial credential to be as waste and as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Galatians was written really for this purpose to confront the idea that right, the outsiders, the Greeks, the Gentiles had to become Jewish proselytes in order to be saved, that they had to adhere to the law. And Paul makes the argument throughout the entire book of Galatians that we are justified by what? By faith alone, by faith alone. Now, let me just say this. Based on this weekend's events, if you've been watching the news in Charlottesville, is that Jesus is not white. He was and is a Middle Eastern Jew. And if white supremacy or any exaltation of any race over another isn't repudiated or repented of to those that cling so closely to it, they will bow their knee at the judgment of that brown God-man Christ Jesus and confess him as Lord. It must be repented of. God is a God of the nations. God is a God of the nations. And through his high priestly work and through his sacrifice, through him, the true temple, all are not just welcomed into the outer court or to the women's court or the men's court. All now have confidence through Christ Jesus to draw near in worship. With boldness, Jesus died for a multi-ethnic bride and he is broken. Jesus is broken at the time when he comes to cleanse the temple that this has not yet been fulfilled that he was being hindered in worship from the Gentiles. In the church, listen to me, the church is the closest thing as we move toward that picture in Revelation chapter seven where around the throne room of God, there's, a, there's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The church is the closest thing to that, this side of heaven. The, the walls of hostility have been broken down in Christ Jesus. Unity in the midst of diversity, the clearest picture of heaven should be here on Sunday morning. But this picture, listen to me, this picture of of perfect unity with God, not only amongst his people and amongst the nations, is like the carrot in front of the horse. Jesus is saying that he wishes that it had been now. And from beginning to end, that is what we are pursuing and what will be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, is that perfect fellowship with God and perfect fellowship with one another, void of sin or prejudice or selfishness. It will be complete in the new heaven and new earth. That's all the pictures we have in Revelation. It's of a multi-ethnic bride worshiping the lamb. But not only is he righteously indignant because of the robbery of his proper worship from the nations, he's also righteously indignant at the corruption of his people. The corruption of his people. This part of the text is quoted from Jeremiah. He says, not only is it not a house of prayer for all peoples, hindering the worship of the Gentiles, that he's due, that you have made it a den of robbers. Jeremiah chapter seven, verses one through 15. For time's sake, I won't have you flip there. But a den is really a place of refuge. A den is a place of refuge. So it... It undoubtedly included the corruption of the Israelite people at Passover, the high prices, right, to make money. But more than their monetary corruption was them thinking that the temple was a safe place for their idolatry. Jeremiah chapter seven, let me read this cross-reference text where Jesus quotes it from. Verse five. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, he says, if you do all these things, if you return to me, the God of the covenant, verse seven, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave you into your fathers. But then listen to verse eight, listen to the condemnation. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known. And this is the condemnation, verse 10. 
and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all of these abominations. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? The condemnation centers on the idea that they could suppress the sojourner, that they could continue to live in immorality, pursue other gods that do not satisfy, that they were not created for, and have the false assurance that they were delivered from God. The Jewish people were embodying both of these all throughout Jesus' ministry. I've noticed it in the book of, of Luke, going through, going through this book, seeing the condemnation of the Pharisees and just how they respond to the truth. That they have rotten-hearted worship and the worship of traditions over the commandments of God. And they've replaced worshiping traditions over worshiping God from the heart. The ritualistic acts of outward cup cleansing was an abomination to God. And the misused purpose of the Gentile court robs God of worship at all. So they had false worship, right? They were trying to worship God outwardly, cleaning the outside of the cup. All the while, their hearts were far from God. And they took up the outer, outer court where the Gentiles were called, right, were called to, to praise and worship God. The hard-hearted, prideful posture of the Jewish people robbed him of true worship. We see that all throughout the Bible. That's the condemnation on the people of God. And when Jesus steps foot in his ministry, that's the condemnation against the Jewish people. Have you seen this interaction with the book of Luke? He is not impressed with outward, ritualistic, traditional lip service. that delights in other things while pretending to love him. He wants you. He wants your heart. He is not content with having, having mere lip service while we pursue sin. He wants a heart that is humble and submissive and obedient and delighting in him and him only. And he knows where our hearts are. He is not fooled by our outer expressions of ritualistic worship. He sees all. He, he sees all motives. He sees your loves. And how sad that by exalting tra traditions and unhealthy motives, that this place where God is supposed to be worshiped has, has been turned into a heap ash of Jesus's judgment. Jesus desired that God would be honored among his people and he wasn't being honored among his people. And he desired that God would be honored among the nations and he wasn't being honored among the nations. Lastly, the response of the chief, chief priests. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When the evening came, they went out of the city. So you could have guessed their response. It's been the same response throughout the entire book of Luke, throughout the gospels. It's hard-hearted. It's no response. It's responding in anger. We see that all throughout the book of Luke. I'll read one, Luke eleven fifty three. 53. And he went away from there and the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Anytime traditions or... Hypocrisy is confronted and challenged by the word of God, the truth. It either results in humility of the recipient or indignation of the recipient. David, when confronted, a humble heart, how does he respond when Nathan confronts him? I have sinned against the Lord. The Pharisees, when confronted, let us remove this authority. Jesus says of them in Matthew 13, we've said it already when he's quoting Isaiah 6, this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. With their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. How does the temple go from a place where man and God meet to where God is altogether forgotten? So let's look at some application. What does this mean for us? First and foremost, that we should be zealous for our Father's glory. 
that God alone is due our hearts and our loves and our worship and our adoration and our obedience and our self-sacrifice. He is worthy of those things. And we should have a righteous indignation against that which steals his glory, namely sin. Sin robs God of his glory. It promises satisfaction. It never delivers. It's our bend in life. Even those who are in Christ Jesus, we have this indwelling sin and we're, we're prone to wander from our God. So the righteous indignation against sin must begin in us with my sin and with your sin. What sin must you drive out this morning by the power of the Spirit in order to worship God in spirit and in truth authentically? Is it your lack of patience with your wife, your anger towards your children, your greed, your lack of compassion for the needy, your lust? What is it that needs to be cleansed that is robbing God of his glory and worship? And this is not only something that we deal with individually, but this is something that we deal with corporately. That God has given us means, one another, accountability, Christian teaching to, to conform us into the image of Jesus that way that on the day of Christ Jesus, the church, as we know here this morning, would be pure and blameless before our King. We must be zealous to have a pure and undefiled temple, both individually and corporately. Are you struggling with sin <laughs> in this process of cleansing? Good. That's a good sign that you're struggling with sin. Find joy that the sacrifice of our great high priest was sufficient. It was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath. It was sufficient, right, to, to earn us forgiveness. That it was sufficient to cleanse us, as 1 John says, from all unrighteousness. And this process that we go through, this struggle against sin will one day be brought to completion. That, that is our hope. That is the hope for the Mahana family. That is the hope for Mr. Keith and his dad. That, that is the hope for the Sewell family is that God is in this process of cleansing us and one day, right, absent from the body, present with the Lord, he will bring it to complete completion, that we will dwell with our God without sin and see our Savior face to face. That is our hope. Be encouraged this morning that the great high priest has done his work and he will finish the work that he has begun in us. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.